Welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I am one of your hosts, Sarah Bramal Ramos, and I recently spoke with Norman Kutcher about his new book, Eunuch and Emperor in the Great Age of Qing Rule, which came out in 2018 with the University of California Press. This book is, as you will hear us say in the conversation, a study of eunuchs and those who manage them. It moves chronologically through the first century and a half of the Qing dynasty, from 1644 to about 1800, and it shows how the first Qing emperors tried to deal with their eunuchs. It charts the policies and plans that these emperors came up with, the reality that resulted, and how they dealt with and wrote about the very real distance that existed between imperial rhetoric and the messy reality of eunuch management. It also looks at how some individual eunuchs, some named and some not, dealt with and worked within or around these attempts to manage them. This book really is a must-read for anyone who does Qing history, but I think it might interest you even if you don't care about the Qing. If you are, uh, if you like stories about conniving eunuchs and you want to hear what the most powerful eunuchs of the Kangxi period got up to, then you'll find a lot to interest you. If you want to learn about one emperor's creative accounting practices that allowed him to hire more eunuchs without appearing to hire more eunuchs, then this is a fascinating read. But perhaps more importantly, this book really is, as you will hear me say in the conversation, a masterclass in how to use and make sense of official sources. This book does such an amazing job of working with and against the kinds of sources that are usually dismissed for just being biased. What do you do if you're, you are a historian and what you have to work with are the words of the emperor himself, his writings about his family and about how great his policies are? What kind of history can you tell about eunuchs when most eunuchs left very few written records? Well, this book shows that the kinds of history that can result can be layered and complex and reveal much about eunuchs and emperors as well. And it does it all so effortlessly. This is such a precise and well-written book, and it was a real pleasure to read, even if I, as someone who is interested in the Qing, was taking copious notes the entire time. But as much as I hope you seek this book out, I hope you enjoy the conversation that follows. In it, Norman unpacks what it took to make this book, touching on his process of writing and shaping it. You'll hear about how this book began and morphed, and why a book that was supposed to be about eunuchs in the Tianlong period begins with Ming loyalists. In our conversation, Norman took me through some of the detective work that went into making the book, from archival research to sending graduates students in to places that he wasn't able to, uh, as well as hinting at some of the editing that went into turning this book into the deceptively effortless read that it is today. I learned so much more about the book, even after reading it, um, by talking to Norman about it, and I hope that you enjoy the conversation that follows as much as I did. I'm here today with Norman Kutcher to talk about his new book, Eunuch and Emperor in the Great Age of Qing Rule. Welcome to the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast, Norman, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Thank you very much, Sarah. So let's begin with the traditional question of the podcast. Uh, Could you say a little bit about your own background? What brought you to the study of China and what brought you to the study of Qing history in particular? Yeah, sure. It's really uh, 
credit I have to give to a bunch of teachers I had. Uh, when I was an undergraduate at Wesleyan, um, my first Chinese history course was with Irene Eber, uh, who actually just recently passed away. And, um, you know, I started out as a U.S. history major. I wanted to try something different. And I ended up uh, in a class on Chinese history that was sort of life-changing. And then after my class with Irene Eber, um, I did a senior thesis with Vera Schwartz uh, that was also sort of life-changing for me. <clears throat> then I went on to study Chinese language, and uh, it was sort of one thing after another from there. Uh, when I started graduate school, I also have to thank teachers who were really influential. Uh, Jonathan Spence, my advisor, Beatrice Bartlett, Ying Shi. It was Beatrice Bartlett in particular that really got me excited about doing Qing history because she really showed, I guess, the world that the archives had an amazing uh, number of untapped resources. Uh, and she kind of gave me the tools I needed to look at them uh, and the energy I needed to, you know, go over and spend time in, in the archives. So, you know, whether it's Qing history or getting interested in China in the first place, it's really uh, credit I'd have to give to my teachers for that. Mm -hmm. So tools, energy, and teachers. Yes. Or the, the three keys, if you like. <laughs> Great. Yeah, so this is your second book. Uh, your first was Morning in Late Imperial China, Filial Piety and the State, which was also focused on the Qing. And it did talk about emperors, but it didn't discuss eunuchs. At least not that I can remember. And I did check the index and I don't, don't remember seeing any eunuchs. Um, so could you talk a little bit about that transition? How did you come to work on the topic of eunuchs? Yeah, well, I, I, I can say one thing that's always interested me <clears throat> One thing that's always interested me is rulership in the Qing. But I've also really always been interested in the gap between rhetoric and reality. So in the morning project, what really interested me there was there were these, you know, new Manchu rulers in China who it was very important to them to pay lip service to the creation of a of a Confucian form of government. And therefore, in order to do that, they would have to allow officials to observe mourning for their parents. But that really kind of got in the way of bureaucratic efficiency. So what I got interested in in, in that book is really how did they create a government that paid lip service to the mourning obligation without actually allowing their officials to mourn? So they created the institution of mourning at the post, for instance. The idea that instead of going home to mourn a parent, you mourn from home, or you mourn from the office, essentially. Um, and in this book, I'm also interested in this kind of difference between rhetoric and reality. That on the one hand, Qing emperors are supposed to view eunuchs as the scourge, the scourge that had led to the downfall of the Ming Dynasty, they were forever supposed to put a stop uh, to eunuch power. And yet they find eunuchs to play a really important role in, in their rule. So it's about how on the one hand, they present themselves as restricting eunuch power, but on the other hand, they 
really actually do allow Unix to play an important role. And what I do in the book is look at uh, different reigns up through the High Ching and show how each emperor did that in slightly different ways. Mm -hmm. And as you're sort of going through the different periods, um, this sort of relates to something that you talk about in the first part of the book, which is that, you know, while there were uh, men who were eunuchs throughout Chinese history, what it meant to be a eunuch changed from not just from dynasty to dynasty, but also reign to reign. So as you just mentioned there, different um, emperors came up with different policies to govern eunuchs um, and you know eunuchs responded in turn to the different policies. So could you talk a little bit about this directly? How does this sort of variability in eunuch policy and eunuch experience, if you like, um, how did this sort of impact how you approached eunuchs and the topic of, you know, eunuch identity? Yeah. So when I started the project, you know, I, I, like a lot of people assumed, you know, that somehow the experience of castration was so dramatic that it made these individuals somehow the same as one another, that, you know, eunuchs were basically eunuchs, that there was such a thing as eunuch identity. And instead, when I started really looking at the documents closely and, and really looking at them sort of at different times, what I saw, first of all, was that, you know, even within a given time period, eunuchs had very different identities. Sometimes their identity was about the particular role they held in the palace. So if you were a eunuch, for instance, working in the, in the Shengping Shu, if you were putting on imperial entertainments, um, that was a major part of your identity and it, it affected you know, how you acted, how you behaved, what you were like. If you were a guard working in the palace, it was different. You had a much more martial identity even though you were still a eunuch. So even within particular time periods, what it meant to be a eunuch was different. But then I also found it varied a lot over time. So Ming eunuchs uh, were, you know, much closer to officials and they identified, you know, particularly the more powerful Ming eunuchs really identified as officials. That continued, you know, much to my surprise into the early Qing reign. So powerful and important eunuchs in the Xunzhi period, in the Kangxi period, they were really much more officials than not. And that really kind of goes away under Qianlong. There's a way in which in the Qianlong period, eunuchs, both, you know, how they dress, how they talk, their skills, they're much less officials. And there, there, was, there was even one document I found from the Qing period where I think it was Qianlong talking about his eunuchs. And he said, you know, uh, our Taijian are not Huanglan. You know, meaning he, he even he even associated the word Huangguan with Ming eunuchs and then Taijian with with Qing eunuchs. That they were really, in his mind, very different different entities or or, or beings. Mm, very very cool, and you you're bringing up documents here. You're referring to documents quite a bit, um, and that sort of bleeds nicely into my next question, which is really about sources. Uh, because something that you you know you sort of mentioned right at the beginning of this book is that it is hard to find sources about eunuchs, and you say that even for famous eunuchs, it is quite difficult to learn 
anything about them. So most eunuchs arose from obscurity and they lived in obscurity. And there are thousands of eunuchs who worked in Beijing and they left very few traces, even for the Qing period. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about this. What kinds of sources did you end up finding and drawing on to create this book? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's you know, a really important point, Sarah. One of the greatest challenges of, of writing about eunuchs is trying to find sources. <clears throat> and, and first of all, they have to be sources that are not really cliched um, because there's plenty of people who wrote about eunuchs, but they, they wrote about them generally in very cliched ways. And they talked about eunuchs as, you know, possessing certain characteristics as always being usurpers of power and influence. Um, but sort of getting beyond those sources uh, to look at the actual experiences of eunuchs is, is really the challenge. And it's, you know, it's very different from in my first book. I, I wrote a lot about uh, important officials, for instance, in the Kangxi period. There you have all kinds of, you know, published biographies. You can look at the, you know, uh, the officials collected works. You can read descriptions about them, letters to and from other officials. Very, very different with the world of eunuchs. Um, I found very little in the way of written materials by eunuchs, especially from the Qing period. And that, that made it much harder to, uh, you know, sort of carry out my research. The bulk of the sources are archival sources from the number one archives in, in, in Beijing. Um, and many of them are records of eunuch wrongdoing. Um, so that, I would say, is probably one of the most important sources in the book. Uh, the other source I use that, that was really, really interesting and important to me were um, inscriptions, stone inscriptions. Um, there are some really wonderful collections of uh, rubbings of inscriptions from the Qing period and earlier that have tons of great information. So, um, for instance, some of them have actual mini biographies of eunuchs because they came from, um, uh, you know, tombstones of eunuchs, uh, but they also came from temples that were uh, often restored by eunuchs. And so therefore they have interesting accounts of the restoration of the temples. There's um, some of them that get into sort of eunuchs religious beliefs. So they talk about some of the uh, stories or accounts of things that went on in the temple and, and they really get into eunuch belief uh, in a way that's fascinating. But I, I use a lot of other sources as well in the book that, you know, uh, not a lot of historians have looked at. Uh, one thing that I really liked reading was um, a book called Ping Jian Chan Yao, which is about uh, essentially Qianlong's views of history. And a lot of what he writes in there is about eunuchs. So you really get a sense from, from that book, from Qianlong's writings, just how much he worried about you know, the, the problems of eunuchs that could recur in his dynasty, uh, in his reign. So, uh, yeah, the sources are pretty varied. I also get a lot into local history sources. So eunuchs tended to come from several counties uh, south of Beijing. And, I, you know, I traipsed through those counties. I looked at local history sources. Some of them are gazetteers, other local sources to try to get parts of that experience as well. But, yeah, the sources were, you know, 
one of the messier parts of trying to uh, work through this book. Mm-hmm. Well, you say it's one of the more one of the messier parts, but I suppose that you've managed managed to craft them into something um, really really something that you know lends that is a great strength of the book because as you as you you know as you said right at the beginning part of what you're looking at here is about um how the first four Qing emperors uh, claimed and planned to deal with the eunuch problem and then what actually came about and really what you're interested in then is the gap so in that way i suppose you mentioned um that you were using sort of some of Qianlong's own writings so in some ways by looking at you know what he himself you know, decided what, you know, the, you know, the laying out of the great yes, plan. Yeah. Um, that's sort of, uh, I, I love that you again, describe that as sort of messy, but I, I sort of see that as one of the very great strengths of this book. It's just a masterclass of what to do with official published sources written by the emperor. And, you know, what can you actually do with them that tells an interesting story about ruler and rulership and about plans and policies and about the gap, um, between those, uh, and, you know, great intentions and slightly messier reality. Um, that was something that I really enjoyed. Oh, thank you. Thank in this you. book itself. Again, it's a, I, I thought that was fascinating. Um, what you sort of did with the messiness, if you like. Oh, thank you. Um, so with that, there is, um, you know, you talked a little bit about there about how things changed, um, through the different rain periods. Um, and as I already mentioned that, much of this book is about the gap, the unintended consequences between imperial rhetoric and the reality of eunuch management. And this does, of course, change throughout the different reign periods. Um, But there is something that does remain a constant thread throughout all the different kinds of rhetoric in the different periods. And that is the notion that eunuchs are a problem. Um, Each emperor is trying to find, you know, the right way, the best way to deal with eunuchs. And this is something that you get into, to get into chapter one, uh, where you introduce us to the gold standard for eunuch management, as it was formulated by three influential Ming loyalist thinkers in the early Qing. Uh, So can you unpack this gold standard a little bit for us? Why are these men so worried about eunuchs in the first place? Um, And so what were some of the key, you know, benchmarks for eunuch management uh, that they thought needed to be, uh, you know, implemented, put forth? Yes. So um, I I think a little, you know, sort of background on how I did my research might might be useful. The book really started out as a book on eunuch management in the Qianlong period. And, uh, you know, I got a, a great fellowship at the Institute for Advanced Study, and it was a really wonderful year. Uh, there was a, a wonderful cohort of um, China scholars there, and uh, Nicola de Cosmo was there sort of as our mentor. And it was just, just this wonderful environment. And, you know, having the kind of freedom of that year, one of the things I said to myself was, what I really want to do is figure out what people in China had to say about what it meant to be a eunuch. And it, at least if I can't get enough of eunuchs' own voices, and if some of those documents that have eunuchs' voices in them are problematic, let me find as many writings as sort of you know essays on statecraft about what is the place of the eunuch in the Chinese past? 
And with this great, you know, I was right at the beginning of my fellowship year. And I said, I'm really going to look through, you know, every book I can find that conceivably deals with that issue. And, you know, databases were kind of just getting going. Okay. We didn't yet have Jungo Jiban Gujiku, you know, these sources that really could, could do that fast. So I, I did a lot of, you know, manual reading. And what I found, like much to my surprise, was that most people didn't write about it. In fact, hardly anyone ever wrote about it. I mean, eunuchs were kind of a dirty secret in the Chinese past. But who wrote about it was really scholars in the Mingqing transition. Like I, I didn't set out to write a chapter about eunuchs and, you know, great, you know, Mingqing transitional thinkers. You know, instead, I wanted to find anything I could, and I found, you know, it sort of started in the in the Ming with Wang Shizhen and Mao Yigong, you know, them just sort of starting to write about eunuchs. But then, really, it was Wang Fuzhi, Huang Zhongxi, and Gu Yanwu who really, you know, made it a focus of their work, in, in part because of their own family experiences, and in part because they wanted to figure out what had happened to the Ming Dynasty. Uh, and when I when I did that, I realized you know they each had their own views. So Wang Fuzhi is, is very fascinated by the difference between Yin and Yang. Um, he writes a lot about about the I Ching, the Book of Changes, and what it can tell us about eunuchs. Uh, Huang Zongxi is is very fixated on the emperor keeping the number of eunuchs low. In Huang Zongxi's mind, that was really responsible for the problems in the Ming. So many eunuchs. Because the emperors were not frugal, meant that they could cause problems. Okay, and then and then Gu Yanwu was very focused on you know how can we be castrating young boys? This this traditionally was a punishment, and we're doing it to innocent boys. How can that ever be a good thing? But if you if you kind of look at what came out of their writings and how they were used by subsequent people, they were kind of distilled into like a set of principles. And and even though these emperors who come later, you know, they're never, they're not fans of those um, loyalist thinkers, but they they do borrow and, and adhere to the principles that emerge. And they're things like eunuchs should not be literate. Okay, so you know, when people looked at what had caused Ming eunuch empowerment, they said it's the eunuchs are drafting edicts. So if eunuchs are kept illiterate. They won't be able to draft edicts. Uh, Eunuchs should be kept out of the military. They should be restricted to household activities, which they all always refer to as spraying and sweeping. They should be poorly paid. Okay, being a eunuch should be, uh, you know, a a, um, sort of a, a, a a move of desperation. No one should want to be a eunuch. It should be you're so poor you have no other choice. Okay, eunuchs should remain inside the palace. They should not be like officials. They should not have families. All of these were things that, you know, had had led in in the mind of these thinkers to eunuch problems. And so that standard, in different forms and emphasized in different ways, you know, becomes something that subsequent uh, Qing emperors are really concerned about. Um, although, you know, as we'll probably talk about to Yongzhang, the gold standard was probably less important than it was to, to some of the other emperors. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, whether or not we talk about the gold standard again or throughout this conversation, certainly some of those ideas, the ideas that um, eunuchs should not be literate, that they should be, you know, kept in their, kept in a very specific place, they should not be like officials, those things I think we're definitely going to see um, cropping up in sort of some of the policies or at least intended policies um, of, of later emperors. Um, great. Um, and, you know, as I just sort of pointed out, these ideas about um, eunuchs and what to do with them, how to manage them, this sort of takes us nicely into chapter two, where we see these ideas again. Um, and here in chapter two, you're looking at eunuch management in the Shunzhou period. And what is really important, I think, at least in this chapter, is that you show how a precedent was set in that, in this period, imperial rhetoric about eunuchs um, deviated quite considerably from practice. So I wonder if you can talk directly about this deviation. Where and in what aspects do you really see um, practice deviating from, um, you know, intention? Yeah, yeah. So, well, I, I was, you know, I'm going to sort of back up and move to the writing of the book. I found myself in a really unusual position. So I was going to write this book about eunuch management in the Qianlong reign. And, I, you know, I chose the Qianlong reign because I found so many documents from that era. But then I found that I'd written a chapter that essentially had to do with eunuchs in the Ming-Qing transition. Uh, so this, this, is after thought, this is after the fellowship year, correct? This is was, sort of- it, was, it was still in the fellowship year, okay, still in the fellowship but, year. but it was December. And I thought, <laughs> well, I, I've written this chapter that deals essentially with the Ming-Qing transition. And I, I'm preparing to write a book on the Qianlong period. I have to fill in that space between them. I mean, it was a very kind of a practical problem. And it, it extended the, the work on the book by years because, you know, it would have been a perfectly fine book and a, you know, a much more manageably, manageably sized book if I kept it to the Qianlong reign. But I thought, well, now I've got to write about Shun Zhe. And this was, was, you know, for me, this was unknown territory. I, I knew nothing about Shun Zhe. I didn't know how the government operated. It's a very different, not only cast of characters, but type of, you know, archival document. And, you know, what what kind of amazed me was Schwinter period is really fascinating. But also, um, I, f- I found some really exciting things from the Schwinter period that really made me think. I, I mean, I, I mean, I went from thinking you know, I just kind of have to do Shun Zhe to get myself chronologically to Qianlong. But then I said, no, 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 wait, this is, this is my favorite chapter in the book. This is, this is really cool stuff. I mean, one thing I found was a collection of, of um, memorials from the eunuch Wang Jinshan. And since he quotes from Shun Zhe so much in them, it's really a dialogue between a very important eunuch and Shun Zhe. And from those documents, it's very, very clear that the eunuchs were really persuading Shun Zhe to reestablish a version of government that matched Ming eunuch power, and that Shun Zhe was clearly going along with it. I mean, so much of what has been said about the Shun Zhe reign was really, has really been about the, the eunuch Wu Liangfu uh, and whether he has undue influence over Shun Zhe, whether he forces their, you know, 
sort of makes a, um, you know, shifts government so that it's, it's organized around Unix. But Wu Liang Fu, there's, there's nothing you can find on him. There's no sources. There's nothing in the archives that I could find. But when I sort of looked away from Wu Liang Fu and instead looked at this Wang Jinshan, who was actually a close associate of Wu Liang Fu, I could, I could see the Shunzhi reign, you know, come much more clearly into focus. Uh, ditto also with the 13 Yaman. You know, traditionally when historians write about the Shunzhi period, it's all about what did it mean that he reestablished the 13 Yaman? Was he reestablishing Ming-style eunuch rule. But there's no documents really left from the 13 Yam. So it's very, very hard to know the answer to that. But what I did find was um, the imperial edict establishing the 13 Yam in draft form. And I, I spend a section of the Shunzhi chapter talking about that particular edict and what the emendations to it mean. Um, and you know that that's exactly the kind of thing that archival research you know can can give a researcher. And clearly, from studying those emendations to the document, what you can see was that essentially, whoever held power to to edit that document, whether it was Shunzhi himself or someone writing and editing on his behalf, they were really changing things around. So Unix would be more powerful. And then the other thing I looked at in that chapter was the, the restoration of the rebuilding of the Qianqing Gong, which I found some really good documents on. And that was really the same thing. Qianqing Gong is a, is a major building in the palace, you know, that tourists to, to Beijing always visit. And it was really reconstructed in the Shunzhi period. And from the documents about that reconstruction and also from the... Um, rituals that were performed when it was opened, it was very clear that Shunzhi was being pushed in the direction of having Ming-style uh, unit government. But all of that is very different from the rhetoric. Uh, the rhetoric, both by Shunzhi and by, you know, when people wrote about him, like Qianlong, was, oh, no, 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 no. Uh, Shunzhi was ever diligent about um, putting a stop to eunuch power, making sure it never reoccurred. Um, and that, that really sets a precedent, as I argue in the book, that, you know, Shunzhi, Kangxi, Yongzheng, Qianlong, and after, emperors are always going to say that they're very diligent. But finding out what they really did requires, you know, looking uh, at the archival documents uh, carefully. Mm-hmm. I can I can see why you were so excited with, with this chapter. <laughs> yeah, in, in, in the second in the second half of your fellowship year, because you know, as you've just sort of pointed out there, I think this really this chapter in particular, as as the rest of the book, uh, but this chapter in particular really speaks to you know the importance of doing archival work, um, among among other things. But so. In your writing of the book, where were you when you came to chapters three and four, which look at the Kangxi reign? So you've already sort of taken us through, you found a lot of writing, Ming-Ching transition that you weren't expecting to find. So now as a writer, you've got to fill in the gaps and get yourself to the Tianlong period. Um, so you were really excited about the Shunzhi period, that chapter. So where were you in chapters three and four? What was sort of your process for that like? Yeah, so I, I was... 
you know, I was very worried because I wanted to finish the book when I was when I was at the institute, and you know, it was not a new project for me at that point either. And I was by the end of the fellowship, I was in the Kangxi period still. I mean, I had I had done drafts of the two Kangxi chapters, and you know, Nicola de Cosmo is just a just a wonderful person and so reassuring. And he said to me, "The Institute is not a place for finishing books. It's it's a place to think more deeply about your project and make it richer." And that's that's what that year really gave me, you know. And I mean, I working in a place like Syracuse, which I really love. I'm the only China historian. So to be with a group of China historians and, and a great group at that, and, and for all of us to be able to think about our projects in detail and not really rush to write them, but to spend time talking about them was, was really a, you know, really a, a great thing. So, um, you know, I finished that fellowship. I went back to Syracuse in some ways feeling, Oh, wow. What a failure I was, but also, I, th- I think, you know, I'm really glad in retrospect. And then in the final, final year I was doing it, I, I also got a fellowship um, at the National Humanities Center. Um, and there was a lot of pressure there, too, to kind of think expansively about your project. But I thought, you know, I'm really on borrowed time. There's, I'm not going to manage another fellowship for this project. So I've really got to get the book done. And so... Uh, I finished the writing of the Qianlong chapters at, at that point. And um, uh, fin- I guess I finished up the book the summer after that fellowship. So, mm-hmm. But so in, when you're in, when you were writing chapters three and four, the Kongxi chapters, those were still in the think expansive phase? Yeah, they were. They were still think expansive. And th- it was also a period where I was finding new sources, uh, and there, there's some really great uh, published documents from the Kangxi period um, that that uh, you know haven't gotten enough attention. Uh, I went back to the archives to look for more documents. The the Taiwan archives, which are mostly online, are you know very very rich for the Kangxi period. So I I found myself you know. Um, still doing research when I was doing the Kangxi stuff. Mm-hmm, great. And I mean, mo- much of chapter three, at least, is really about, um, you know, you talk a lot about how historians have, you know, traditionally considered this period to be a time in which eunuch management became very, very strict. Um, he was supposed to have kept eunuchs poor and impoverished. He was meant to have kept a close eye on them and make sure that they stayed in their proper role as servants not officials. Um, so I'm guessing a lot of what you found, because this is largely what the chapter is about, you know, challenging that. Um, so is that is that sort of the case? Much of those documents you were finding were sort of working against that view, as you show in this chapter? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I found there was a real distinction in the Kangxi period between how he treated rank and file eunuchs and how he treated the eunuchs of his inner circle. And a lot of that was really apparent from basically a lot of detective work. I mean, one of my main set of sources for the Kangxi period are actually the writings of foreigners. 
So Italian Jesuits at his court, um, you know, accounts by foreigners of embassies, um, and those those took a while to work through. In, work through in, in part because I didn't always have the language skills that was you know that was necessary. Um, but I did manage to you know look with a fine tooth comb at uh, the memoirs of Father Ripa in Italian, so I could you know figure out what was going on in them. And what I saw was when it came to his inner circle he really was willing to trust some eunuchs and to give them important roles that made them look a lot more like Ming eunuchs, that made them look like officials. Uh, and these were highly educated eunuchs, so that made them look more like Ming eunuchs and more like officials. Um, they were, in a way, they were freer thinkers. And this is something you can find with eunuchs in general. So officials who are educated tend to be educated through Confucian standards so that they can achieve in the examination systems. The eunuchs don't have that restriction. And so they can follow their interests wherever they go. And, and Kangxi himself was someone, you know, as you know, who had very, very wide interests. He was interested in science. He was interested in mathematics. So eunuchs who were educated in that way, often self-educated, and who could keep up with him, he really had a soft spot for those sort of eunuchs. And he gave them um, a lot a, a lot to do. Uh, and it was really interesting sort of seeing them function as a sort of diplomats, uh, particularly one eunuch that I write about because, you know, he, he sort of gets involved mediating disputes between, um, between the Qing and foreign powers. And you, you can kind of see that he doesn't, he sort of avoids a pissing match, if I can put it in those terms. And what allows him to do that in a way is the, is the fact that he's a eunuch. I mean, this is obviously opening many other questions that we can get into. But he, he really has a kind of common sense approach to solving problems that, that works well. And he's sort of free from a lot of the, you know, the restrictions that come from a Confucianism only um, education. But for rank and file eunuchs, it was a really different thing. I mean, there, Kangxi felt like, I don't, I don't know these people. I don't know what they're doing. And we really need to be diligent dealing with that. There, his, his distinction between rhetoric and reality was that in his rhetoric, it was sort of an obligation that was incumbent on him personally. So, you know, a diligent emperor watches over his eunuchs. But in practice, there were just too many of them for him to keep a watch on. And so he started by creating institutions that watched over them. And, and really, sort of the most important thing was he made supervisory eunuchs responsible for the behavior of their subordinates. So the supervisory eunuch, the Shouling Taizian, for him becomes the person that's going to be held responsible for the actions of rank and file eunuchs. And in documents, you can see again and again, he's saying, look, where was this guy's supervisor if they're off doing this? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And there's one case in particular that you talk about here 
Um, I'll just mention it briefly because I found it particularly fascinating about a eunuch who used poison to drug and kidnap kidnap someone outside of the palace walls. And the Kongxi Emperor's sort of response to this is, why was he outside? Where where was his supervisor? <laughs> why how was that how did you know not you know not so worried about the act itself, but you know, how did we allow this to happen? Um you know, yeah, so yes, there absolutely you get into a lot of different cases here, and we're not going to have the time to sort of go into them um and you know go through all the different names and the different circumstances, but yes, certainly the supervisors um come into full force here. Um, but I actually wanted to circle back to something you mentioned. You talked about uh, a eunuch who was particularly important to the Kangxi Emperor. Was did he have a name? In, or yeah, so there there's a there's a group of eunuchs who are really important to Kangxi, um, and many of them have not really been noticed by historians uh, much at all. Um, I think the one you're referring to is is a guy named Wei Zhu, um, who. You know, at one time I was thinking, if I could get enough material together, I could really do a book about Wei Zhu. He's he's a really fascinating person that we don't know very much about. Um, but I but I, I I think I think it would be Wei Zhu. He he was very involved, for example, in diplomatic exchanges between the Qing court and European powers. Um, the the earliest story I found about his boyhood was on an inscription in Dinghui Se. And Dinghui Se is a small temple uh, in Haidian, in, in Beijing. And I, I actually, I wasn't able to visit Dinghui Se because it's on, it's on the grounds of, I mean, it's technically an Air Force base, but it's, it's really a living place for retired Air Force officials. And I, I, I mean, I hovered around the outside a few times and they wouldn't let me in. And then there was a point where there was no one at the, in the little booth. And I thought, I really could go in there now. I could go into Dingwe Se now. But, you know, I chickened out. Um, and, you know, the thing is, if you know, I stood out as a foreigner. But if I were Chinese, I could just go right through. So my student, Lei Duan, who you know, um, is a fantastic PhD student, uh, is graduated. He wrote an excellent dissertation, um, on, on private gun ownership in the Qing and Republican period, but he was in Beijing doing research. And I said, you got to go check out Ding Hui So for me. So he went in with his camera and he took pictures of the stellies and of, you know, around the temple. One of them is in the book, but I, I'd actually had a rubbing of that stelly anyway. And in there, it talks about Wei Zhu's boyhood. And, the, you know, apparently Wei Zhu uh, was walking around the hills in western Beijing. I mean, obviously, Haidian wasn't developed at that point. He was walking through the hills with his grandfather, and they came on this very dilapidated temple. And you know, grandfather and grandson were sort of lamenting its state. And just at this point, in comes, you know, what's described as a crazed Taoist. And the crazed Taoist says, a great man will come and rebuild this temple. And right then and there, Wei Zhu says to his grandfather, I'm going to be that great man. Uh, and, um, you know, sure enough, Wei Zhu, who goes in, in the palace as a boy, um, 
you know, it gets gets castrated as a preteen. We're not exactly sure when, but he rises up to be, you know, the senior emperor, uh, the senior eunuch to to the Kangxi emperor. Uh, and, you know, because he enters the palace at a young age, becomes important at a relatively young age, he has a very long career, which is, you know, something generally I learned about eunuchs. They have, you know, unlike officials who tend to have short careers because it takes them so long to pass the Jinshur exam often uh, and to rise up through the ranks, these eunuchs become important young in their lives often. And so Weiju really lives into the Qianlong period. He's, he's a main uh, advisor to the Kangxi Emperor. He's important in the Yongzheng reign. He lives into the Qianlong reign. He keeps cropping up. Um, and, you know, he, he kind of becomes a thorn in people's sides. Um, at one point in the Yongzheng period, he's building himself a big mansion uh, right next to the imperial tombs. And this, this was actually common to retire near the tombs of the emperors he served. Um, at, at another point, uh, Qianlong is criticizing him because um, these people are coming to petition for him. And he said, you know, he's supposed to be under house arrest. Uh, how is he coming out and, and um, having people petition for him, including high officials? He's this very, very well-connected person. Uh, for a time, he ends up in house arrest at Tuancheng. I don't know if, uh, if, if you've ever been to Beihai Park, probably you have, but there's Tuancheng, the big round city. Well, at one point, he's under house arrest in Tuancheng because the Yongzheng emperor is mad at him and he, he's running a business there, growing calabash gourds in mold and making musical instruments out of them. I mean, he's an incredibly resourceful person who is, is, is endlessly fascinating, but it's sometimes nearly impossible to even figure out some of the most basic things about him. So it's, it's, it's you know, I, I feel like uh, oftentimes a, a really fascinating history book is going to have main characters. And sadly, my, my book doesn't really have main characters. But, but uh, and, and it's, you know, there's many people who come and go. There's people, you know, you, the eunuch you were talking about before in the Kangxi period who escapes, is on the outside, injures someone fa- someone's face. There's very little about him. There's all these intriguing people who come and go. And I wish I had more on them. But Weiju is the, the one person you kind of follow through a few chapters. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We follow him through chapter four, chapter five, which is sort of, um, which takes us into the Yongzheng reign and the uh, Yongzheng emperor's troubled succession. And you sort of touch on a little bit um, Wei Zhu and the role that he plays or maybe doesn't play in the succession, which I'll just leave as a mystery for listeners uh, to seek out. Um, and then, you know, we see him uh, just a little bit in chapter six, which sort of looks at the aftermath of the Yongzheng Emperor's succession. And this is a little bit of a spoiler to, uh, to, this, to the suspense that I feel that I just set up there. Um, because as you might imagine, for an emperor who had to deal with eunuch scheming, especially around his succession, uh, Yongzheng was not warm towards eunuchs, um, but we'll uh, leave that there. Um, which 
you know, and this takes us when we follow Weiju even into the final chapters of the book, chapters seven, eight, and nine, which is when you get into the Tianlong reign, which is, I suppose, the part of the book that you expected to write when you started out writing it. Um, yeah, so in chapter seven, uh, you make it clear, and I, I this is sounding more and more like maybe a chapter you might have started with, um, that although the Qianlong Emperor certainly, he, you know, he departed from um, he he departed from how his father and grandfather had dealt with the problem of eunuchs, but he didn't want to appear to be departing from precedents that they had set. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how Qianlong dealt with this problem. How did he chart his own course without overtly appearing to do so? And this, I think, takes us back to something that you talked about right at the beginning, which is, you know, the writing of history and the Qianlong Emperor's own writing of his own history. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. So, I mean, really, it falls to the Qianlong Emperor to kind of really whitewash the history of eunuchs in his reign. Um, and the, the main way he does that is by commissioning the book called Guo Chao Gongshi, A History of Our Dynasty's Palaces. And in that book, what he really does, um, you know, with the, with the aid of the you know, the, the senior officials who compile the book is they put together a series of edicts that cast all of the Qing emperors to that time, including Qianlong, as people who adhere to the gold standard. They are really tough on eunuchs. They don't let them become literate. They don't let there be large numbers of eunuchs. Uh, everything that the gold standard lays out is set up in that book. And the, the real problem here for historians is that until the, the archives really opened, that book was the book that people used to look at eunuch history in the Qing. So you, you, you can see the problem here. Like the, the main source is a biased source because it's really covering over the reality of what happened with eunuchs. Um, and so what I do instead is I take that book and I use it to say, this is really how they wanted to portray how they managed eunuchs, but the reality was something very different. And Qianlong really takes that kind of duality and raises it to new heights. And what, what really puts him in a, a unique situation is the following. He's got a real eunuch shortage on his hands. So, you know, there, you know, as so many people have written about uh, rulership in the Qianlong period, and I, I think, you know, collectively we're starting to have a good sense of it. And and really, it was so complex because Qianlong was able to do one thing and say another. With, with, with many, many layers of complexity to that duality. You know, and Pamela Crossley has written about this. You know, many, many other people have, have um, written about this phenomenon. And it really comes into sharp focus with the example of how he deals with eunuchs. So on the one hand, yeah, he's looking at what his father did. And, and Yongzheng, we haven't talked much about it so far, but Yongzheng really wanted to rationalize 
make more efficient how he managed Unix. He wanted to incentivize them. He wanted to pay them better. He wanted to uh, make sure they were taken care of in old age, in part out of sympathy and in part because he wanted them to work harder on the job. He'd say things like, why should we pay them all the same? Some work harder than others. Why don't we give them rank so they'll strive for promotion? Well, that was all fine. But the problem was to Chen Lung, those looked like violations of the gold standard. Eunuchs should be poor. They shouldn't be like officials. So Chen Lung has to reverse course on what his father did, but kind of cover that over. But at the same time, this is kind of a weird layer of, of paradox. He really needs there to be more eunuchs. He's got a eunuch shortage on his hands. And part of the reason he has a eunuch shortage, when he talks about the shortage, when he admits to it, he's going to say, I'm so hard on my eunuchs. No one wants to be a eunuch. But the reality is very different. He needs more eunuchs because he's vastly increased the size of the palace system. He's, he's turned Yuan Ming Yuan from a relatively small operation. This palace in Northwest Beijing has gone from a small operation to a big operation with many eunuchs. And this is exactly what the Minqing thinkers that I talk about in chapter one were worried about. You know, more palaces mean more women to, to fill the palace means more eunuchs to watch over the women. Okay. And this is what, exactly what Chen Lung is doing. So what he does is he says, I'm so tough on eunuchs. I want to know, I want an accounting. How many eunuchs did Kangxi have? Tell me how many he had, and I'll make sure I never go over that number. This is in a, you know, um, an edict to his officials. And his officials respond, 3,300, something like that. You know, that's how many eunuchs there were. And Chen Lung says, I'll never go over that amount. But what he does is he uses a lot of creative accounting to show not only doesn't he go over that number, uh, but in fact, there's a shortage, a manufactured shortage based on an accounting strategy. And that accounting strategy involves who are you counting as your eunuchs? Um, and it took me, as you can imagine, it took me a while to figure this out. But essentially, he's not counting UN Min Yuan eunuchs. Um, and there's other things that go along with this too. He wants young eunuchs at UN Min Yuan. So he starts moving them around, shuffling them around. Okay. So a lot of interesting stuff goes on in the accounting world so that he can show himself to be, you know, a filial emperor adhering to the gold standard. But in fact, he's opening up a new world of possibilities for eunuchs. He's allowing a lot more of them. There's a lot of unintended consequences. He's looking the other way a lot so that they can make more money at what they do. They can take more tips. They can open pawn shops, they can get involved in money lending, all that's kind of going on under his nose. And he, he knows about it. Um, and it's all to make the job more appealing while he's saying, I'm not making the job more appealing. I mean, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of fascinating study, I think, in, in, in rulership. And both for him and for the other, you know, and for Yongzhang and Kangxi, we, we still see their personalities at work in ways that fits with other scholarship that's been done. But you, you can see the, the palace aspect of it as a kind of different wrinkle. Mm -hmm. It is, as, as you said, it is definitely creative accounting at its best.
Uh, great. I mean, we've, we've, we're kind of, we're sort of pushing here on chapter eight and nine. Um, so I'll just sort of summarize what happens in chapter eight um, so we can sort of get to chapter nine. And you've already touched on it a little bit, but I'll just sort of recap again. Um, chapter eight sort of deals with as you sort of just pointed at this sort of this big myth that Tianlong is creating, which is that, you know, the myth that he had direct control over the eunuchs. And so chapter eight really focuses on this. Um, and it shows that while the system of, you know, direct oversight that Tianlong erected looked great on paper, um, there was a dedicated, he set up a, a dedicated police force that was supposed to investigate eunuch wrongdoing. There was a list of punishments that was supposed to deter eunuchs from doing anything wrong. There was a carefully erected hierarchy of eunuch supervisors, um, and you know, but this didn't always work as it was supposed to. Um, and then as you sort of touched on already in the very final chapter, chapter nine, you then really look at the world created by Tianlong and his eunuchs. So the possibilities that Qianlong sort of allowed and afforded for his eunuchs um, that really didn't exist before. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what aspects of this were new. So what, and by this, of course, I mean, what parts of this wouldn't have been possible under previous emperors? So what did the Qianlong world for eunuchs sort of look like? Yeah, yeah. So I, I think, you know, as I kind of reflect on the question, um, we we can see small examples in earlier reigns of what happened in a much bigger way in the Qianlong period. But some of those developments in the Qianlong period are so dramatically different as to constitute an entirely new world. So for instance, um, we could we could take the example of gambling. Obviously, before the Qianlong period, eunuchs were gambling in the palace. There are, you know, there's gambling is, you know, uh, is, is, who doesn't is, like gambling? Who doesn't like, who doesn't like Everyone, gambling? Everyone, you know? every, every back alley, street corner, there's always, it's very easy to do wherever, yes. Yeah, yeah. there's probably so, gambling before. There's gambling. And, you know, I mean, Beijing is an interesting place to study. And I, I think at heart, I'm kind of a, a person really deeply interested in the history of Beijing generally. And, you know, it, it really interests me, even when I was in China, you know, um, in the 90s and what went on around, you know, Tiananmen Square, especially in the early 90s, was so carefully policed. I remember walking around at night and, you know, just seeing some uh, uh, guards uh, gambling in a corner, you know, just out of Who sight of the gambling? camera. Who doesn't love gambling? <laughs> so it always went on, you know, but gambling becomes really different in the Qianlong period. Um, it's organized. Um, there are, you know, big games that take place in uh, meeting halls that are organized by eunuchs where princes are showing up, where merchants are showing up. I mean, there's, there's a freedom to come and go in the Qianlong period that's unmatched in earlier reigns. I mean, with the proper arrangements with your supervisory eunuch, you can go and live outside the palace. Uh, you can have a life, you know, sort of a part where you, you just kind of check in with the palace periodically. There, there's, 
occasional cases that look something like that in the Kangxi period, but it's a whole new world in the Qianlong era. And I mean, most of this I know comes from the archival documents that deal with eunuch wrongdoing. Um, so, you know, we were talking about sources at the beginning. One of the main uh, set of sources I use are the Neofu uh, Zohan. And these are the kind of collected documents when a eunuch committed a crime. There would be confessions of the eunuch, there would be um, an analysis of the case, and all, all of this was, you know, uh, the written product of the investigation that came out of the system that Kangxi had just established, but Qianlong really developed into its final form. And, and those case documents, the Neofu Zohan, one of the things that um, I learned was that Qianlong would have them read to him while he was eating. So, you know, to me, I have a really fascinating image of my mind, right? So, you know, when he reviews, you know, most of his serious memorials, they were, you know, in a more serious kind of setting, but he's there eating and he's having read to him, you know, the, the quirky misdeeds of his little, you know, eunuch people. And the message of these documents always has to be, ah, oh, the eunuchs are just being eunuchs. You know, they miss their parents and that's why they ran away. They went out shopping and they lost track of time. You know, there was a set of cliched excuses that eunuchs used. And in the Qianlong period, you can see that they are perfecting those excuses, that the people who are taking their, their confessions are perfecting them. And everyone is doing this dance to reassure Qianlong while he's eating that everything in the palace is under control. And, you know, I had to sort of look at those documents in a detective sort of way and say things like, ah, into this very formulaic confession, a person has slipped the fact that they ran away to someplace very far from their home. So how can they say they missed their parents when they, they didn't run to their hometown? Um, or I would read documents that didn't have to do with uniqueness wrongdoing, but with other things. And I'd see it sort of mentioned like ex-pawn shops were owned by eunuchs. So it, it really required a lot of hunting around to find the story of what was sort of really going on. And that led me to see something very different was happening in Qianlong. And also that that, that different thing happening in Qianlong in the Qianlong period, was really going to set the precedent for what eunuchs were doing by the end of the dynasty. So, so traditionally, historians of the Qing say eunuchs got powerful at the end of the Qing under Cixi, you know, under female rulership. But instead, I'm saying, no, this happened much earlier. This was happening in the Qianlong period. Mm -hmm. Right under the nose of the multitasking food eating, <laughs> meal eating channel effort. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. So we're coming to the end of our conversation and the end of your book. Um, but before we sort of wrap up entirely, I'd, act I'd actually like to ask you about the very end of the book, um, because you end this in a very specific way. You end with the image of an unknown 
impoverished eunuch who was found dressed in rags hanging from a tree near the Siben garrison. So can you talk a little bit about why you chose to end the book here with this eunuch? Yeah, yeah, Sarah. Well, it was, was a little bit controversial. And um, I have a, a colleague in my department who is now retired uh, by the name of Fred Marquardt. And, you know, Fred was my really patient interlocutor throughout the project of, of writing the book. And I remember many lunches and dinners with him where I tried to work out particular points in the book. And we would talk about his research and my research. And uh, in the end, I, I hated to ask him, but he was kind enough to read the whole manuscript for me, uh, which I'm you know, really indebted to him for. And he also gave me a lot of pointers on cutting it because the book was much longer initially and um, California didn't want to publish it full length. So I had to cut it. And, you know, Fred was very, very brutal about you know, showing me what I had to cut. And he'd be like, great story, cut it. You don't need it. And it, you know, it, it, I hated cutting some of those stories. They were fascinating stories of sex toys in the palace. I mean, this is good stuff. Why, you know, people, don't people want to read that? But, you know, he was right. And, and when it came to the end of the book, he said, why are you ending the book on this downer? He said, you need a triumphant story that shows that these people triumphed in the end despite what they went through. And, you know, I said, Fred, I, I hear you, but somehow this is the story I always wanted to end with. And maybe I'm not even sure why, but at the end of the day, because I was talking so much about empowerment, opportunity, and, and how good these eunuchs were at kind of steering around, you know, the restrictions on them, meeting the expectations of, of eunuchs. I mean, to be a great eunuch is to be whatever a particular individual emperor wants you to be, right? So like, like Hangxi prizes mathematics, a great eunuch becomes a math genius, okay? But I said, this was not what life was like for most people. You know, most, most eunuchs didn't, have that great an experience. And, and even if a lot of them survived in these hard circumstances, it's important to remember the people who, who didn't, who ran away because their, their assignment didn't work out for them, who ran home, ended up coming back to the palace. Maybe they were spurned at home by family that didn't want to see them, and that happened a lot. They come back to the palace, their salary gets caught, gets cut, in half, they can't survive on that. And I, to me, the end of the book is a reminder of that. But, you know, part of me could, could have seen doing it differently as well. Mm -hmm. I think it's also a wonderful reminder of, you know, as you, as we've talked on, as we touched on a little bit, um, you know, so your book is filled, even though apparently many of them, many of the stories made it to the cutting room, made it, didn't make it off oh, yeah. the floor. They, they were left, um, your book is filled with stories of eunuchs who some of, you know, ones with names. And as you've already pointed out, those were sort of the, very much the exception. Those were the ones you could find names for. Those were the the triumphant stories of the eunuch who, like like Weiju ends up, you know, doing 
a, a fant- what sounds like a fantastic side hustle, even while he's, um, um, uh, you know, disgraced uh, in name alone, I guess. Um, but yeah, I thought it was a wonderful reminder of some of the things you mentioned in the introduction about how, you know, this is the story of the named Unix that you know of that we can talk about, but there were so many others who just sort of never made it um, in that kind of way. So maybe it is a little bit of a sad ending. It's definitely not triumphant, um, but I, I thought it was a great way to end the book with sort of reflecting on and, you know, really bringing that, drawing that back out again. I thought it was a great way to finish it. Um, but so now that you're finished with this book and with the Unix, uh, what are you working on next? Is, is some of what made it on the cutting room floor turning into another project? or I, I think so. I'm sort of torn, Sarah, because, yeah, honestly, there's a part of me who's sort of done with Unix. And you know, part of me just thinks, I got to go and do something different. Um, and, you know, I'm super intrigued by the Schwinger period. I, re- I believe it's really understudied. But I cut a lot out. I mean... I wrote, you know, I spent an entire summer writing about um, really the one major Unix scandal of the Qianlong period. And I mean, it's a fascinating story. Um, and it, it really ended up less than a page in the book. And I thought, I've, I've collected so much material on that. I'm I'm crazy if I don't write about it further. I even have written text on it. Um, I found amazing materials on late Qianlong Unix that, I mean, it's Unix and the Daowang period are fascinating. And I put some of that into the, you know, into the conclusion of the book, but it's, you know, it's, it's a fraction of what I have. And it's, it's a really, you know, it's an un, uh, you know a, a story worth telling in many ways. I mean, I, I I sort of decided to do the book up through the Qianlong period because that's the period when I see the sort of modern Qing Unix structure taking effect. But there's a lot of interesting stuff in the period afterwards. Um, there's also questions about Unix that I really wasn't able to answer in the book because I felt like they sort of, they almost deserved their own treatment or they were more speculative. I mean, one thing I decided early in this project was that I really didn't want to speculate. I wanted to find evidence for everything I said. Uh, And so sometimes people, I think they get a little frustrated because they're like, well, why isn't he talking more about uh, Unix and gender questions? And obviously that, that comes up in my work. Clearly when officials had certain, you know, you know, cliched notions of why Unix ran away, they were gendered. Um, but I could imagine other smaller studies like articles where I talk specifically about Unix and gender or Unix and religion. I, I think there's still room for some of that work. But as I say, I'm kind of torn because part of me would like to move on to something else. <laughs> well, which whichever way you end up going, um, and you know, whichever form some of that material, you know, makes it into the world out into, um, I very much look forward to reading it. Um, and thank you very much for writing 
this book and for sharing so much about the writing process um, with me and with listeners uh, here today. Thank you. That's my pleasure. Thank, thank you for these wonderful questions. <laughs>